This morning, I would like to share with you something that sits very, very firmly on my heart. It's about how we can pray in the name of Jesus and what that really means. Because I would love for every believer in this room to be confident to go and pray for somebody who's sick. To lay their hands on someone and say, in the name of Jesus, I pray for you to be healed. And understand what they're doing and do it with, with a boldness that comes from a true faith that's rooted in a relationship with God Himself. And so that's what our desire for each one of us is, that we would be confident to minister in the name of Jesus without falling into any of the traps that surround uh, that kind of ministry where you start to engage yourself in spiritual warfare or in seeking deliverance or praying for healing or wanting some kind of a miracle. We should be a people who believe God for those things. That God is alive and He answers prayer. That He is able to do miracles at any moment. And our faith is actually the conduit for God's power. I believe these things. And I've also seen the church get caught up in some kind of a, um, weirdnesses. Where I, I mean, I've been part of it. I'm not judging from the outside. I've walked from the inside where you get in a bus and you drive up to the highest hill so you can pray down over the city. I just noticed you, Bernard, Bert. Welcome. Quickly stand. Let the church see you. Bert's here. He's a former member. He's now based back in the Netherlands, but uh, visiting with Mercy Ships, serving on that project. So, welcome. So where was I? The weirdness of praying down from a hilltop over a city. You know what? It's not that weird if it works to stir up your faith so that you pray with more conviction. But it is weird if you think by positioning yourself somewhere different geographically, your prayer is more powerful. And I want us to get that distinction because we should be able to say, don't react against the weird things the church has done and stop praying, but believe like the centurion who came to Jesus and said, I'm a man under authority and if you say the word, my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, now I see real faith. You see, there was a time when my child was sick and I went to his bedside and I laid hands on him and I prayed a fervent, desperate parent's prayer in the name of Jesus, asking God for a breakthrough and God gave it. And I think that prayer was as powerful as any prayer I ever prayed from a hilltop because the prayer was to the same God who's on the throne. And so as I share, I want you to be encouraged that we stand on the side of victory like we were just singing. And we should pray prayers of faith with conviction, but not confusion about what the name of Jesus means. Yeah. So I'm going to preface my message with a, a couple of thoughts. I'm already doing that. I better pray as well, so that the Lord guides me. Heavenly Father, help me to share what you've put on my heart this morning. And Holy Spirit, won't you speak to us and unlock faith in our hearts that we can walk, Lord God, in your power in Jesus' name. Amen. So, all existence as we know it, observed without any form of faith, is simply a universe bound and operating by some sort of laws of physics. If you're a rational person, a Westerner normally, you look at the world as a, a mathematical, physical situation. 
It's the natural creation or nature or the cosmos. But God, when He created, He created both a physical, material universe and a spiritual realm. And both of these exist as part of the one creation God made. One realm is material and visible to us, and the other is spiritual and invisible. God Himself existed before He created anything, for He is eternal and infinite. God is uncreated, and He's apart from His creation. In other words, creation isn't part of God. Creation was made separate from God by God, even though He is omnipresent in His creation. So the creation, including the spiritual realm, with the angels and the demons, is finite. Everything that is made was made by God who is infinite, but He alone is infinite. Everything else is finite. There is a bound to everything except God. Now there is good and evil in this creation. But this is not some kind of dualism. It's not a balancing of opposite forces or energies. It's not a Taoist idea of some kind of yin-yang, good-evil dual. It's not that. So when you hear those messages that you need to kind of, you know, go to some kind of new age practitioner to restore some kind of an energy balance within your life because, you know, it's all about these opposing forces, it's not that really. That's not how the Bible teaches and that's not what truly exists. You don't need to bring some kind of New Age harmony by moving some kind of invisible energy in order to have some kind of a centered life. I don't think you should really have a totally centered life unless you've got Christ absolutely at the center of your life. Otherwise you should have an extreme life that's like extremely hard in pursuing Jesus. It should be an all-or-nothing life. It should be out there on the fringe. It shouldn't be a moderate, normal life. Actually, there's no balance between these opposing forces of good and evil, light and dark. There never has been and there never will be. When Lucifer or Satan led some kind of rebellion in heaven, a third of the angels were cast down with him. And so you can see there's no balance. A third, two-thirds. You put that on any scale, the one side is outweighing the other. So the good angels drastically outnumber the fallen evil demons. And the leader of the demons, Satan, is a created being who is finite. That's it. In one place at one time, and probably not here because I'm not nearly important enough to have an audience with the devil. So the reality is there could be demons around, there could be twice as many angels around, just by the law of averages. And Satan himself is probably nowhere near here. Although, you know, some letters that were written to the churches, you know, they were given this commendation, you're where Satan dwells. Well, every pastor wants to believe he's up against the devil. But we're generally probably not even being harassed by super important demons. So, <laughs> Satan is a created being, finite, in one place at one time, and actually limited in knowledge and power. Not omniscient, doesn't know everything, only knows what he can see and get told. So, here's the text to start with. 1 John 4 verse 1. 1 John 4 verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. 
This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Past tense, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus in us, even though we're the little ones, we have overcome. That's what John is writing. He's saying, you're the little one. You're weak. You're, you're a young, you may be the youngest believer in the room. You might be 10 years old. But Jesus in you, you have overcome. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So when you're a believer, Jesus is in you and he has overcome the devil. He has broken the power of sin and death and he's conquered. He is victorious and he's coming back to take his place as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All authority on earth and in heaven is his. There will be no balance and evil will not be kept at bay. He will return to crush all his foes and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So this is my preface because when we speak of, and this is the title of my message, Magic, Miracles and the Name of Jesus. When we speak of magic and miracles in the name of Jesus, we need to understand the context of the battle. Victory is certain, there is no balance of power, there is no hope for evil or those who practice it. Yes. Yeah. So let's see in the Bible how this works. In Exodus 7 verse 8. Exodus 7 verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So God is literally prepping Moses for a showdown and saying, When Pharaoh challenges you, you turn to Aaron and say, Throw your stick on the ground and it's going to become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yeah. <laughs> How's that? Now, what's interesting to me here is like, it's actually about authority, not magic. Yeah. What's taking place is, is, is not just an entertainment spectacle. There's a lesson that's being demonstrated. God knew this was going to happen. He knew the magicians could do magic. He knew there would be more than one snake. He also knew that Aaron's staff would eat up the other staffs. The snake, or whatever its name was in those days, was a symbol, an early Egyptian goddess who was said to control and protect the land. The imagery came to symbolize Pharaoh's sovereignty, his royalty, his deity, and his divine authority in ancient Egypt. It was used in the headdress of the king of Egypt. Using the symbolism of the snake, God was showing Moses that he alone is God in control over Egypt, not Pharaoh. He is the one true God who is sovereign over the land of Egypt and a higher authority than Pharaoh himself. So that 
thing that happened there was to give Moses boldness. It wasn't to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, because actually in that moment, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He responded with the opposite to what you would expect. He didn't submit to this miracle. He actually just hardened his heart. But what happened to Moses was he got the message. God is greater than Pharaoh. So, think about it. There's no power inherent in the stick itself. Aaron's staff is a piece of wood. Just a piece of wood. And he throws it on the ground in that moment and it turns into a serpent that carries on in supernatural stuff. That's, we would say it's a miracle until the other guys do the same thing. They throw their staffs down and they become snakes. And now we know something really spooky is going on and that's magic. So the devil does magic, God does miracles. They can sometimes look the same because they're both supernatural. Supernatural stuff happens outside of the physical realm, meaning it's part of the spiritual realm crashing in on the physical realm. You, it doesn't obey the laws of physics. Sticks don't have the right chemistry to be snakes. But it happened. And the one set of magicians did it by the power of evil. There was demonic stuff happening. Just like in all real magic, there's demonic stuff happening and you should have nothing to do with evil. On the other hand, God does miracles and miracles beat magic every time. That's what I see happening there. The snake eats the other snakes or the staff ate the staffs. So one was the supernatural power of God, the other was the supernatural power of demons. They do have power. But God gave a sign. He is the supreme authority who conquers all others. Let's look at another example. In 2 Kings 13 verse 20, 2 Kings 13 verse 20, it says, So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha and as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha he revived and stood on his feet. Now this here is a is an interesting miracle. I used to misinterpret this. I mean I speculate and I ponder and I ask God how do these things work? Was this Elisha's anointing that was lingering on his bones? No, it wasn't. It was just Elisha in the grave but Elisha had made promises, he had prophesied, actually prophecy is often a declaration of God's intention to do something and it can come across as a promise because God's committed to do that. What was happening was Israel was being invaded from time to time by these marauding bands of Moabites and the prophet had died before the fulfillment of his prophecies and Israel was starting to be be threatened by their enemies, but God, when, when that guy struck his um, arrow on the ground three times, God promised three victories. And they had up to this point not experienced all three victories. And so what was happening is God was doing a sign miracle to speak to his people and say, while you are fleeing from the marauding enemies, I'm still holding true 
to being able to defeat your enemies. And so Elisha catches their attention again as this guy comes to life after he gets hastily thrown in the tomb and makes contact with Elisha's bones. So actually, there was these physical representations and manifestations of God's power. That's what's taking place. And there's no power inherently in the object. The stick was just a stick. Elisha's bones were just Elisha's bones. Why God raised that guy to life was he was saying, this Elisha's prophecies are still going to come to pass. He was speaking victory to Israel. He was finding them in a place of running from their enemies and saying, you can stand because you're going to have more victory. So, think about it. God's power flows from God. It's not like radioactivity. Yeah. <laughs> Elisha's bones weren't radioactive. They didn't have like some lingering afterglow of some kind of the power of God that Elisha used to experience. That kind of thinking leads you to turn his bones into a relic and then run around the world carrying his bones so people can touch them. And nothing would happen. Because there was no sign for God to give besides that one moment of encouragement to Israel that Elisha still had prophecies that God would fulfill. So, basically, you see these things, they have no inherent power, but God moves powerfully using them. So I don't know which one I am going to be, a stick or a bone, like just something dead or useless, but God's power can move. And in a way, this is a, a wonderful sign God gives through Elisha's bones. Um, he says, remember the promised victories. God is still able to deliver and He will. And for us, I think there's even another message that out of the tomb, there's life coming. Yeah. Out of the tomb, there's life coming. And that speaks of Jesus who walked out of the tomb for us. And so when you're facing those things and you think, there's, where's the power of God? God says, there's a promise and I'm still going to fulfill it. But some people think of this power as if you can summon it or if, as if it exists in something. And that's what gives rise to the superstition around relics. A similar superstition is exercised around physical objects. And this active faith surely enables the power of evil to operate sometimes. For example, when I was a teenager, there was a, a witch who used to paint pictures, demonically inspired pictures. And people used to say, you know, if you have one of those pictures in your home, then there's going to be demonic stuff happening in your home. And if you believed that, it was more likely going to happen. You see, the people that put their faith in something, the faith simply opens the door as a conduit for some kind of a power to flow. So there were people who would understand that that thing in itself is nothing. An idol, the Bible teaches us, is nothing. It's a dead piece of wood or an idol. But when people put their faith in it superstitiously, it really certainly does open the doorway to all kinds of demonic stuff. So that's why when people in the bush take off their amulets and burn their, their, their witchcraft trinkets, we celebrate because they're no longer putting their faith in those things. But those things genuinely held them bound. 
So faith is actually the issue, not the object. The object is just like a kind of a catalyst. So when we anoint the sick with oil, if the elders come and put oil on you, there is nothing about the oil except that it acts as a catalyst for your faith. And it acts as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And it speaks of God anointing, but it's His Spirit that does that, not the oil. Otherwise, we would have had to travel to Israel to buy the best, you know, like, you know, it's like we superstitious thing, people, we make something into something. But that thing is nothing. It's God who is everything and there are demons also behind some dynamics. But the object itself is, what do they call it? It's, um... It's not inert, it's, 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 it's just, it's not, it's not alive. Inanimate, that's the word I'm looking for. It's inanimate, that means it has no life in it. It has no animation. It's, it doesn't breathe, it doesn't, it doesn't have a spirit. So now I told you I was going to talk about magic and miracles in the name of Jesus. Miracles are greater than magic because God is greater than any devil. And he has a reason for his miracles. Like what happened at Elisha's bones won't happen again because God was using that miracle as a sign to Israel to speak. So think about this. God has a reason for his miracles. He doesn't do stuff to entertain people. He just doesn't. People have tried to do miracles on television. I mean, in a kind of a unsaved Journalists want to interview the faith healer and then they say, I'll come on your show and I'll lay hands on someone who's sick and I'll, you know, heal him. And they did this once in South Africa and nothing happened. Because God is not your toy. And the church ends up looking stupid because we're acting with the gifts of the Holy Spirit as if we control the power behind them. That is superstition. So we have this way of ending our prayers in the name of Jesus, Amen. Or in Jesus' name, Amen. And I will always do that. But I do it because I understand why I'm saying these words. Why do we do this? You know, I want us to be serious about this and willing to scrutinize every instance where we do things just because someone else did. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know the story of the pot roast. Some of you do, I'm sure. A young woman was hosting a dinner party for her friends and served a delicious pot roast. One of her friends enjoyed it so much that she asked for the recipe and the young woman wrote it down for her. But looking at what the the cook was doing, looking over the recipe, her friend inquired, why do you cut both ends off the roast before it's prepared and put in the pan? The young woman replied, I don't know. I cut the ends off because I learned this recipe from my mom and that was the way she always did it. Her friend's questions got the young woman thinking, so the next day she called her mom and asked her, Mom, when you make the pot roast, why do you cut off and discard the ends of the roast before we set it in the pan and season it? Her mom quickly replied, that's how your grandma always did it, and I learned the recipe from her. The young woman was really curious, so she called her elderly grandma and asked her the same question. Grandma, I often make the pot roast recipe that I learned from mom, and she learned it from you. Why do you cut the ends off the roast before you prepare it? The grandmother thought for a while, since it had been years since she made the roast herself, and then she replied, I cut them off because the roast was always bigger than the pan I had. (laughs) There you go. 
they missed out on all that extra they could have had when the pan got bigger because they just copied what they'd seen done and if you're just copying what you saw done it's not it's not what we should be settling for yeah. if someone says in jesus name we want to know where's what's that about yes. and christianity isn't firstly a culture or a tradition you don't just to inherit what everybody else does it's a relationship with god and through his word we come to understand this relationship is built on communication and understanding it's not built on ceremony and ritual so if your church or your form of christianity is too ceremonial and too ritualistic you end up doing superstitious stuff like we just always did it cut off the ends of the roast in jesus name so think think about this praying in jesus name well, we're told to do it. That's a good reason. In um, John 14, verse 13, Jesus himself speaking, John 14, verse 13 and 14, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Loads of very big sounding offers. So we'll more on that later, but you know, ask anything, says Jesus. In Acts 16, so not, not Acts, sorry, in Mark, Mark 16, in Mark 16, verse 17 and 18, we read, Jesus again speaking, these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. But it doesn't always work. Sorry to say. It doesn't always work. I'd be in it just to see if it might work though. Just to tell you. Rather give it a go. In Acts 19 verse 11, we see this wonderful account of how people misinterpreted the name of Jesus. Acts 19 verse 11 we read, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So Paul's hands were just like kind of the tool. God was doing extraordinary miracles. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. And that really is amazing. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva, I don't know how you say his name, were doing this. They were busy doing, like, treating the name of Jesus like magic. But the evil spirit answered them. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, I've heard of him, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. You've got to picture this. Seven guys come to pray, and they pray in Jesus' name. They say, in Jesus' name, be delivered to the sick guy, whatever, and the demon manifests and says, we know, I know Jesus, 
I've heard of Paul, but who are you? And then proceeds to sort of magically, well, definitely supernaturally empower the demonized guy with Hulk strength. And Hulk beats seven guys up and they all flee, scratched, bleeding, naked, humiliated. Anyway, proof that there is power in the name of Jesus, but not always. So there's power in the name of Jesus when you know what it means. But when you're not in relationship with Jesus, when he doesn't know you and you don't know him, there's no power in the name of Jesus. You see, Jesus' name is not an incantation. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. See, mystery was restored to the situation. It's not a formula. There's a mysterious component that should keep you humble. There's a kind of the people realize this is bigger than us. We can't control it. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. So repentance is a good sign of the work of God. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. God wins. He had the gospel propagates. People repent. Uh, people are burning their, their witchcraft stuff. Even though in the midst of it, some people were trying to use the name of Jesus just to brandish it like a, in their own power. So there's, there's an example. When you pray and you say, in the name of Jesus, don't expect a kind of a magic response. Don't think it's the, that you said, in the name of Jesus, that it would achieve something. Because that's just like taking a bigger stick. It's still just a stick. If, you, if in your mind it's not, it, and you're thinking there's some kind of magic in the phrase. Yeah. It's not in the phrase. Right. The power is in Jesus Himself. The authority sits in God. And so whether you whispered it with faith or whether you declared it with boldness, it would, it's the same. The power of God will move when God moves. And so I, I do believe you should sometimes lay hands on, your, on the sick and say, in Jesus' name, because your faith should be insistent and you should be expressive. But not, it's not the volume of your voice that determines the measure of your anointing. This is something the church gets wrong in Africa. You think by making a bigger spectacle, we're releasing more power. I saw a priest, man, he was an Anglican conservative, and he just said, Receive the Spirit. And the person fell down. Receive the Spirit. And the person fell down. You could hardly hear him speak. But the power of God was present. And I respected that priest as a man of faith. Even though he didn't dress like I would like to dress. <laughs> and of course we know. We don't always get what we ask for. Jesus said... Ask whatever you ask in my name, and I'll do it for you. Well, why then, when I asked you, God, didn't you do what I asked for? Why? It's because the power comes from God, not even from our faith. Our faith is a conduit, but God is the source. So that means you can even have belief that something will happen, or trust God for it, and still be disappointed. 
But that's okay. As long as you tried. As long as you prayed. See, God remains sovereign. So I can ask, but I can't force it to happen. But when we pray in Jesus' name, in the name of Jesus means in and under His authority. So this is how it works. In the old days, a, a man who wore a uniform, who carried a badge, FBI or US Marshal, or I don't know what TV taught us, but <laughs> South African Police Service, I don't know. You carry a badge, you can say to somebody, stop if he's driving his car, step in the road and say stop. And in the old days they used to say, in the name of the law. You see, that guy was a representative of the legal system, the law enforcement. He was a law enforcement officer and he could enforce the law. He had authority to enforce the law. So he was just a man. But with the badge, he was empowered to have authority to say, stop in the name of the law to a motorist. And the motorist would pull off his vehicle and submit to an inspection or whatever. The guy with the badge was in authority to do that. So of course, the guy with the badge could get a swollen head. He could think he's more important than he is. And he could say, get out of your car and do 20 push-ups. And the person could say, nah, not going to do it for you. Be like, you don't have the authority to give me that command. You don't have the authority. You, you, you see, in the name of the law, the law is still bigger than you and limits you at the same time. It's up to the law what you can and can't do. And so what we see when Jesus' name is used, we can't see it as an incantation that gives us automatic authorization. In Jesus' name, whatever I say must happen. See, in John 14 verse 12, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. What did Jesus do? As He pleases or the will of the Father? He does the will of the Father. He says, I do nothing of my own authority. I do only that which I see my Father do. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. You know that text? It's correctly translated. Whatever is bound in heaven is that which will be bound on earth. In other words, you have authority to execute the will of God. You don't have authority from God to execute other plans. So Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. So Jesus says, I'm going to go to the Father, pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and you are going to be empowered with my authority to go and represent me yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And so now the question becomes, in the name of Jesus, standing in His authority and under His authority, can I represent Him in my praying? Yes. So, when I look at Scripture, and I, I remember the guys in the charismatic church that I used to belong to, and man, did they bind Satan regularly. Satan, I bind you. Okay. So now Satan's bound. The world's going to be a much better place. But it still isn't, and Satan still isn't. 
See, Satan is semi-restrained and later he gets more released or something and then he gets fully destroyed. And that's in the plan of God. And God determines to what degree Satan is bound or free. Because he's ultimately in authority and he hasn't actually given us power to cast Satan into hell. Because he's reserved that for himself. So as much as I want to, I'm not authorized to. So even if I say, in the name of the Lord, do 20 push-ups, the Lord doesn't give me the authority to say that. And God doesn't give me the authority to bind Satan once and for all. Because Jesus is the one who binds the strong man. And so my appeal is not to my authority, what has God told me I can do now? No, it's Jesus, rebuke the enemy for me. Jesus, would you rebuke the enemy? Just like Jude teaches us. That there's, there's powers and, and, and they have power. And you shouldn't be flippant with the supernatural or with deliverance or, you know, all these things. But we appeal to God and to His authority and say, God, rebuke the enemy in this situation. Jesus, will you take care of the devil where he's been robbing from me? And, so while I say on the one hand, Satan, I bind you, may not be God's agenda. Now, later, yes. But to say, demon, I command you in the name of Jesus, leave. Or, Lord, rebuke the enemy. You can very much believe that would be on God's agenda for now. So I'm saying I believe that you can go into a spiritual confrontation knowing that you have authority in the name of Jesus and wield that authority with confidence that it is not a kind of a, a... mystical potion or a magic charm, but it is simply that Jesus has told you, go in my name, lay hands on the sick, and I will heal. So you go and you lay hands on the sick, you pray, and God heals if it's on His agenda. He's still the one who ultimately brings the power. But we should be believing God for miracles. We should occasionally see them. That is my experience. I think if I had greater faith, I would probably see more miracles. What do I mean by that? When Jesus was in his own hometown, he couldn't do many miracles. Now there's nothing that God can't do. How can you say Jesus couldn't do miracles? He could instantaneously end this world in in a moment. He can do anything he wants. So the reason that Jesus couldn't do many miracles in his hometown was because They didn't bring the sick to him. Why did they not bring the sick to him? Because they didn't believe he was the Son of God. A prophet is without honor in his hometown. They didn't recognize him as Jesus. They saw him as Joseph and Mary's son. They never even came and asked. And I don't want to live like a believer who lives as if I'm familiar with Jesus that way. He doesn't do miracles anymore. Of course then you're not going to see many miracles. But if you believe that God maybe is going to heal this person and you put your hands on your child when they're sick and you say, in Jesus' name, sickness leave. Then you know you're not doing magic. You're making a prayer to God, understanding that He's given you authority to heal. And if it is His plan to heal, He will heal. Not everyone will be healed every moment because sometimes there is an appointed time for a healing. There was a man born... Blind or lame? Blind. 
blind. His whole life he was blind. And then Jesus came and, and he healed him. And then Jesus explained this guy was actually brought to this moment so that he, Jesus himself could demonstrate that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. And so you could have gone a week before Jesus and prayed for that guy, if you hypothetically, if you could travel in time. And he wouldn't have been healed because God was going to use that healing for a purpose in a moment. So can you not doubt the motive of God? Can you not, don't doubt that God's desire is to do good. Sometimes he didn't answer your prayer because he was planning something better. He was planning something more important. But what should our response be? Our response should be full of faith that we have been given the authority that Jesus has to go in his name to preach, to proclaim the gospel, to pray for the sick, to see miracles. But all of that, whenever I pray in Jesus' name, I'm actually thinking, I'm making my appeal that I'm under his authority in order to be in his authority. So it's like inherent in there is this thought, not my will, but yours be done. Not what I'm doing, but what you're doing. Not my works, but your works. And then God can move in response to our faith. And He does. So, won't the band come up, please?